0: This episode contains descriptions of death. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. The following is from Man's Size in Marble by Edith Nesbitt. On each side of the altar lay a grey marble figure of a knight in full plate armor lying upon a low slab with hands held up in everlasting prayer. Their names were lost, But the peasants told of them that they had been fierce and wicked men, marauders by land and sea, guilty of deeds so foul that the house they had lived in had been stricken by lightning and the vengeance of heaven. Looking at the bad hard faces reproduced in the marble, this story was easily believed. Good evening everyone and welcome back to Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Alastair Murden, and today we begin a very special season of our show. We've told many tales from our collection of ghost stories, from gothic era horror to terrifying folklore from around the globe, but we are about to close the book because soon We will be taking a hiatus on our strange little show but before we do we have one more season of hair-raising stories to explore the following episode is our own unique take on an original tale it may feel familiar in some ways and different in others as always we hope you enjoy it When we think of the Victorian horror writer, certain names may come to mind. Perhaps Bram Stoker, Henry James, or most likely, Edgar Allan Poe. These authors are bastions of the genre. But in truth, Gothic horror is nothing without its women writers. The Victorian era was full of female authors. And despite the supposed gentleness of their sex, they penned some of the most disturbing and unsettling horror fiction the world has ever read. At times, before the world was ready to accept such material from women. We've told some of their stories on our show, but this week, in honor of Women's History Month, we'll be kicking off a series that focuses on two of them. Edith Wharton and Edith Nesbitt. The two Ediths made an impact on feminism with their writing, but aside from their names, they actually had very little in common. Wharton was a wealthy socialite, a beneficiary of American capitalism, while Nesbitt was a socialist who advocated to dismantle the same systems that Wharton lived by. In spite of their differences, both women found a similar way of coping with the sexism of their time by expressing their struggles through the medium of literary horror. Today's episode comes from Edith Nesbitt. Though she was primarily known for writing children's books, she also published a number of short horror stories. And Man Sized in Marble is perhaps her most famous. I'll be narrating the tale from the perspective of Jack, a young artist who has recently married the love of his life. The couple has just moved into a quaint little cottage and by all appearances, they couldn't be happier. But Jack's newly wedded bliss will not last long. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Coming up, the idyllic village of Brenzit hides a dark
1: and violent past. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
2: This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity, with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app.
0: If you are reading this, I imagine you must be the new owner of Stone Point Cottage. I have written this letter as a warning, though I don't imagine you'll believe a word of it. I know I wouldn't have. These days, people are always looking for a rational explanation, a way to reason with truths that are fundamentally unreasonable. I have no real proof to convince you of my honesty. The only other person who could have confirmed my story is dead. Even so, I pray that you will take heed of my words. Your very life will depend on it. My wife, Laura, and I moved into Stone Point Cottage just after our wedding. We had tried finding a home before the ceremony, but nothing was ever quite right. Sometimes it seemed like we were waiting for the perfect house to find us. Laura was a delicate creature, with dark hair and wide blue eyes, I knew from the moment I saw her that it was my duty to love and protect her for the rest of our lives. We'd planned to take our honeymoon at a charming little inn just off the coast of Kent, but soon we found something that brought our vacation to an abrupt end. We'd taken a day trip to go see an old church that supposedly dated back to the time of the Vikings. The old building was just outside the village of Brenzit at the end of a narrow country road. Laura and I passed through the grove of yew trees when a steepled structure of ancient black wood rose up in front of us. As we approached the church's iron-studded doors, Laura gazed in awe at the archaic carvings etched into its wood. It feels as if we've stepped into some magical realm, doesn't it? I humored her flight of fancy, but in truth, the place reminded me of something darker It made me think of the Northern Warlords who'd once marauded up and down the English coast. Inside the building, rough-hewn timbers rose into the darkness above the chancel. As we made our way down the aisle, I noticed two statues set into narrow alcoves on either side of the altar. They were life-sized figures, tall and broad-shouldered, lying atop stone slabs. Then, as we stepped closer, I realized they were knights, their full suits of armor carved into marble. I approached one of them and stared down at it. The figure was ancient, but I could still see every wrinkle in the man's face and every plate of his armor. His eyes were narrowed in a glare and his lips curled into a leering smile. Laura came to stand beside me and remarked in a low voice, There's something evil about him. I laughed. <laughs> more ugly than anything else. I wonder who they were. Before Laura could answer, a voice rang out behind us. They were monsters. I spun around to see a red-headed man with bushy sideburns standing a few feet away. Laura put a hand on her chest and cried out, "My, you startled us." The man grinned and held out his hand. "Apologies. I'm Dr. Sean Kelly. If I'd known there was a lady present, I wouldn't have been so eager to scare you. As if sensing our curiosity, Kelly turned back to the statues and continued, The legend goes that they were once brothers. Norman lords who lived by no code of honour, only the demands of power and the allure of vice. Legend has it they ground up the bones of their victims to make them mortar for their castle. And when they died, it's said the villagers sealed their bodies into marble statues, hoping to seal away all the evil still lingering in their corpses. A silence fell as we all turned to look at the ugly stone statues. The quiet was broken by a hearty laugh from Kelly. (laughs) But that's all a lord of poppycock. Most likely they were ordinary noblemen. These statues are marble true and true, although the castle is real, or at least it was. The ruins are down at the end of the path. Laura pulled on my arm. Perhaps we ought to go see them. Kelly shrugged. There's not much to see anymore. Most of it burned down ages ago. An older woman bought the land several years back and built a house around the rooms that remained, but she died last Christmas. It's sat empty ever since. I looked at Laura. Should we go anyway? It might be a nice walk. Laura smiled. I wouldn't mind seeing a cottage made out of bones. We bid Dr. Kelly goodbye and made our way back outside. The trail meandered along a grassy cliff above the sea until it reached a sun-dappled tunnel of flowering wisteria. At the end of that passage was a thatched roof cottage that looked as though it had been plucked straight out of a fairy tale. The walls in the center of the house were built of ancient stone. Sunlight glinted off its rounded window panes and a cherrywood porch wrapped around the front, an old rocking chair its only inhabitant. Laura and I looked at each other, and for a moment we each knew exactly what the other was thinking. This was the house we'd been searching for. We returned with an estate agent the very next day. He showed us the inside, which was just as charming as the outside. There was a bright art studio where I could do my painting and an oak-panelled library where Laura could write her little stories. After touring the house, Laura and I sat on the porch and gazed out at the garden. I put my arm around her and declared, My mind's made up. This is our home. Laura pursed her lips. Are we sure that we ought to move here? I don't want to be so far away from our friends. I'd miss the city, cafes, and literary salons. The house is nice, but is it worth giving up our lives? I chuckled. (laughs) My pussycat, it's your nature to worry and my job to reassure you. We can still be bohemians. All that matters is that we're together. Laura shook her head. I'm just afraid that... I interrupted Laura with a little tap on the nose. You're such an anxious little dove. You'd find something to fret about no matter where we ended up. This was meant to be our home and I won't allow your nerves to spoil our happiness. We're going to buy this home, and I won't hear another word about it." Laura looked down for a moment. Then, perfect wife that she was, she took my hand and smiled, no doubt excited for our new life together. Those first three months in the cottage were wonderful. Laura put up white linen curtains and planted sunflowers, while I hired a ruddy-cheeked peasant woman to cook and keep house for us. Laura's worries had been unfounded. We were as inspired as ever. I painted grand landscapes, while Laura drew inspiration from the villagers. She wrote cute little tales about our neighbors and published them in pulpy magazines. My wife was no chaucer, but she did bring in our monthly income. As for finding enlightening companions, it turned out that Dr. Kelly lived only a short distance away. Laura found him a bit too brusque, but she was willing to suffer his company for my benefit. Eventually, she was able to look past his vulgar sense of humor, and we spent many an evening in his garden laughing over a tumbler of brandy. But by far my favorite thing was our nightly walk. We'd stroll arm-in-arm through the moonlit meadows until we reached the old church. There we would sit and take in the strange silence of that ancient place. That was the happiest time of my life. I had everything I'd ever wanted. By the end of autumn, it would all be gone. One evening in late October, I returned from a drink at Dr. Kelly's to find my wife sitting in her window seat, sobbing. She stopped crying just long enough to explain that our housekeeper, Mrs. Dorman, was going to leave by the end of the month. She was acting so strange. I'm certain there must be some rumour about us in the village. No one will want to work for us. We'll have to do everything ourselves. We'll have no time to write or paint and... Before you know it, we'll be in the poorhouse." I brushed a tear from her eye. Don't cry, pussycat. It must be a misunderstanding. She probably wants more money. I'll speak with her tomorrow and clear it up. The next morning, I woke at dawn and headed downstairs to wait for Mrs. Dorman. As soon as I saw her coming up the garden path, I strode out of the house and demanded to know why she insisted on leaving. Mrs. Dorman went pale. I just... have to go. I could come back after if you'd like. But I've got to be gone by All Hallows' Eve. I stared at her. Why? Is it just that you want a holiday? If that's the case, we could accommodate you, but you must give notice. Mrs. Dorman looked stung. That's not it. It's... well... I heard a rumour. I raised my eyebrows in surprise. Perhaps Laura had been right. Perhaps the villagers had spread some nasty gossip about us. Mrs. Dorman took a deep breath and looked around as if worried that she might be overheard. I suppose you know about the horrible deeds done on this spot. Perhaps you've seen the statues of those that did them. The two bodies down at the church, drawed out man-size in marble. A chill ran up my back as I recalled those ghastly statues. Mrs. Dorman went on. It happens on All Hallows' Eve. At eleven they begin to stir. They sit up on their stone slabs, moving the marble cages that the villagers trapped them in centuries ago. They leave the church and head down the path to the place where they once lived. And if anyone meets them along the way... She stopped. It was as if an invisible hand had closed around her throat, cutting her off mid-sentence. I took her arm. Well, what is it? What do they do? Mrs. Dorman just shook her head, her eyes wide with fear. Whatever they did, it was something too terrible to be spoken aloud. Coming up, a fatal mistake brings Jack's world crashing down around him.
2: I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades-long disappearance. Now, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. My housekeeper's story
0: had stirred something in me. Perhaps it was that peculiar phrase, man-sized in marble, or the look of utter conviction in her eyes, but I found myself wondering if her tale could be true. I pictured the grim faces of those statues in the old church. I imagined them rising up from their stone slabs and making their way toward our cozy little cottage. Suddenly I realized how foolish I was being. Mrs. Dorman was a good storyteller, but she wasn't that good. I shook my head. Tell me, what makes you believe so fervently in this legend? Have you seen it for yourself? Mrs. Dorman crossed her arms. I've heard the stories of those that have. They've seen huge tracks sunk deep into the mud, treads made with the weight of stone. I snorted. And how can you know these stories are true? Mrs. Dorman narrowed her eyes. A woman knows when she's being lied to. She took a step toward me, eyes burning. You should stay away from this place on All Hallows' Eve, or at least lock the door. Stay inside and hang a cross in every window. If you don't, the price may be higher than you're willing to pay. I gave her a sad smile. I'll be sure to do that, Mrs. Dorman. As I watched her walk away, I thought how sad it must be to live mired in such grim superstitions. It was too late for her but not for my wife. Once Mrs. Dorman had gone, I found Laura making herself a cup of tea in the kitchen. I explained that there were no horrible rumors about us going round in the village. Mrs. Dorman only wanted a brief holiday and would be back the following week. As I have said before, Laura had a nervous nature. I was sure that such an ominous tale would stick in her mind, worrying her to no end. For her own good, I would not disclose the full details of Mrs. Dorman's warning. There was little time for thoughts of walking statues anyway, as we were much too occupied in making up for our housekeeper's absence. Laura in particular took to the washing and cooking. She picked up the tasks so well, I began to wonder if a little domestic work might be good for her. All Hallow's Eve dawned bright and crisp. It was a perfect day. We ate a leisurely breakfast, took a long walk along the seashore, and sat together on the cliffs. We watched as the sun sank beneath the waves, and tendrils of fog crept up from the horizon, spreading over the sea in a thick white blanket. When we returned home, I stoked the coals in the hearth, and we enjoyed a companionable silence. Then, to my surprise, Laura turned to me and asked, Do you ever have premonitions? I shook my head. It worried me to hear her talk about such things. Laura looked down at her hands and continued. I don't mean visions or anything silly like that, just certain feelings, I suppose. I've only had them once before. The night my father died, I had a strange feeling and somehow I knew. It was like I could sense death on the wind. I suddenly noticed how white her face had become. Thinking that the day's activities had been too much, I suggested that she ought to retire. I'll go outside to smoke my pipe so that you shan't be disturbed by it. She chewed on her lip and declared, I'd like to come too. I stroked her hair. No, my dear, you are overtired. And besides, I wouldn't have you catch a cold for the sake of keeping me company. Laura promised she'd go up to bed soon, and I headed outside, leaving the door unlatched behind me. As I sat smoking on the porch, I heard the sound of distant church bells marking the late hour. It was eleven o'clock already. I supposed I ought to go back to Laura, but I wasn't eager to. I'd much rather take a walk on a pleasant evening than return to the dramatics of my poor dear wife. I got to my feet and made my way down to the church. The moon hung low in the sky, casting a grey pall over the wind-swept grasses and the waving tree limbs. I noticed how quiet it had grown. There were no birds or insects here, only the sound of my footsteps crunching in the fallen leaves. A noise cut through the silent woods behind me. It sounded like footfall, much heavier than my own. I froze and listened intently. There was nothing. I pulled my coat around me and took another step. The sound came again. Growing anxious, I sped up. The footsteps seemed to trail me through the woods. I glanced behind me and glimpsed a flash of glistening white moving between the trees. My heartbeat quickened, and for the first time since the day she'd left, I thought of Mrs. Dorman's warnings. It was absurd of course, surely this was just some poacher or vagabond trudging through the woods. Still, I could not stop myself from hurrying down the path until I reached the old church. I found the door standing open and wondered if someone else had visited the church this evening, perhaps the same person I'd seen in the woods. As I stepped across the threshold, I remembered something. It was now past eleven. Mrs. Dorman's words echoed in my mind. At 11, they begin to stir. My heart began to pound as I approached the altar. Then, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. In the dim light, I could have sworn the two stone slabs were empty. As I stepped closer, The round face of the moon emerged momentarily from behind a cloud, bathing the chapel in silver light. My heart stopped. I saw it clearly now. They were gone. I was gripped by sudden horror. I thought of Laura's premonitions, how easily I'd dismissed them. Now I understood her, for in that moment I knew beyond a doubt that some terrible catastrophe was about to occur. A lightning bolt of misfortune was going to strike. I tore down the aisle and out of the church. I raced across the churchyard cemetery and leapt over the fence. Suddenly, a man appeared in my path. I blindly shoved past him, shouting, get out of my way. A hand caught my arm and a voice asked, what's come over you, Jack? I looked up into the ruddy face of Dr. Kelly. Babbling in terror, I cried out, I've got to get home. The marble figures have left the church. They're gone. Kelly let out a robust chuckle. Oh, what nonsense. Come now, don't be a coward. I was on my way home, but first, why don't I take you back to the church? We can go and see that everything is just as it has always been. My voice came out as a pitiful whine. But I must get home to my wife. Kelly shook his head scornfully. If I permitted you to go the rest of your life thinking solid marble can pick itself up and walk about, I'd never forgive myself. I took a deep breath. I suddenly felt so silly. The cool night air and the presence of Dr. Kelly had brought me somewhat to my senses. I nodded and reluctantly allowed him to pull me back toward the church. I shut my eyes as we approached the altar. I heard Kelly strike a match. I think you must have taken one too many glasses of brandy, my friend. I opened my eyes and drew in a sharp breath. There were two marble knights lying before me, just as always. I stammered as I tried to get my mind around what I was seeing. It must have been a trick of the light, or... The triumphant grin slid... From kelly's face as he leaned over one of the statues by jove there is something different see there one of the fingers is gone i peered over his shoulder and saw that he was right the thick index finger on the left knight's right hand had been broken off kelly smiled in satisfaction That explains it. Your creative mind has played a trick on you. That small change, along with too much excitement, has triggered a false image. It's a perfectly ordinary phenomenon. Kelly slapped me on the back. Come, I'll take you home. As we came in sight of the cottage, I saw that the front door was standing open, letting a stream of light out into the dark. Remembering I'd left it unlatched, I realized it must have blown open in the night's strong winds. We mounted the steps and entered the house. In the sitting room, dozens of candles were flickering on every available surface. I sighed. My poor pussycat. She lights candles whenever she's upset. What a cad I'd been to have left her there alone. I turned the corner to the library, then froze something was wrong. Laura's chair was empty, books lay strewn on the floor, their pages ripped apart, and on one was a smear of blood. I turned, and my whole body went numb. She was beside the window seat, laying across a small table as if she'd fallen back into it, her arms draped toward the floor, and her long brown hair streamed over the carpet. Her lips were open in a silent scream, and her eyes were wide in raw terror. My stomach churned. What horrors had they seen? I ran to her and saw the thick purple bruise around her neck and a trickle of blood running from her lips. Her head lolled loosely as I cradled her in my arms. I kissed and cajoled her, but in my heart I knew that she was already dead. Her whole body was limp, all save for her hands, which clenched tightly around some object. When I was sure that she was gone, and all my happiness had turned to bitter ash, I allowed Dr. Kelly to pry open her hand and see what she was holding. It was a grey, marble finger.
1: It's easy to
0: read Man's Size in Marble as a feminist text. The narrator constantly patronizes his new wife, calling her my child and my little girl, and disregards her work. He treats her writing as a tawdry commercial venture, while he considers himself an artist. A look at the biography of the story's author might support this reading. Edith Nesbitt met her husband, a man named Hubert Bland, when she was only 18. Like the characters in the story, Edith and Hubert considered themselves bohemians who disregarded the rules of polite society. And like Laura, Edith supported Hubert through her writing, as he was often out of work. Hubert even referred to Edith as Pussy, using the same kind of patronizing nickname that Jack uses with Laura. Considering this, one could see the as a feminist tale of a man who pays a terrible price for trivializing women. But the truth is more complicated, because you see, Edith Nesbitt was something of a paradox. While she considered herself an advanced woman who cut her hair short, smoked cigarettes, and refused to wear corsets, some of her values were not particularly feminist. Scholars believe she often echoed her husband's bigoted views. On one notable occasion, she argued that training and teaching women to use their brains could potentially result in the extinction of the human race. So what are we to make of this particular fable? Often, horror stories speak to us because they're expressions of a deeper, often subconscious fear. So maybe we can interpret man's size in marble as the same. Perhaps it's the result of years of Nesbitt's own bubbling resentment. A warning that if one ignores her own intuition for too long and simply does as she's told, eventually it will kill her. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free exclusively on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Zoe Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Robert Teamstra and Alex Garland, fact checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden.